National Catholic Register. This is Register Radio, bringing light and clarity to the news and topics that affect your life. June brings summer sun and hopefully also vacation fun. For the church, it brings a host of important feasts. From Pentecost to Trinity Sunday to Corpus Christi and many other feasts in between. Register columnist John Grindelsky helps us raise our hearts and minds to that which matters most, union with God, as we contemplate June's holy days. Then Matthew Bunsen, EWTN News' executive editor and our Washington, D.C. bureau chief, joins me for an editor's corner that looks at headlines you won't want to miss. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register. And as I said, we're joined by John Grindelsky, who is a former Associate Dean of the School of Theology at Seton Hall University in, uh, in South Orange, New Jersey. Uh, he has been writing for the Register for many, many years now. Uh, he loves to write on... Uh, the liturgical seasons and art, uh, and has brought us some beautiful uh, reflections on sacred art uh, that coincide uh, with the seasons, the rhythms of, of our church. In her wisdom, she gives us uh, these feasts as opportunities to raise our minds and hearts uh, to heaven. So, John, thank you so much uh, for being with us today. Thank you, Jeanette, for having me. You wrote a great piece that I was proofing in the in the hard copy and the register pages. You know, as I prepared to uh, to publish um, the print edition, it was uh, all about the feasts uh, of this month of June, and I I um, I love it because my wedding anniversary is this month. Uh, just passed, and I back then chose the the solemnity of the Holy Trinity. And so I have a a great fondness for June and her feast, its feast, I guess I should say. Um, And so I I thought your piece was perfect, bringing all of these feasts together. And in doing so, you identified a message that the church has for us. What is the message that uh, the feasts, especially the ones I mentioned, the solemnity of, of Pentecost, Trinity, and Corpus Christi, what do they have in common for us? Well, the Church's message is that these feasts are about God's life-giving love. Uh, I think sometimes we fail to see that because we talk about the season of Easter and Pentecost comes and Easter season is over. In theory, we're in ordinary time and suddenly there's these other feasts that jump into the calendar, Trinity Sunday and Corpus Christi in the United States, which is on a Sunday, and people wonder, you know, how has all of this fit together, and does it fit together? And then there's, you know, the tradition of June being the month of the Sacred Heart, and then we all know about June weddings and June graduations. And so the question is, you know, is, is there a common thread that holds this all together? And, and there really is, which is the life-giving love of God, uh, which is manifest in the Trinity, which is given to us in the Eucharist, which we, as being in His image and likeness, are called to mirror in, among other ways, marriage. Absolutely. It's thus I, I chose that, um, you know, that I was delighted. I guess I didn't even choose it, you know. I was just delighted to find that um, the day I chose for my wedding 
um, happen to be uh, the solemnity of the Holy Trinity. Uh, I've taught my kids that we do a litany of, um, of prayers at night and one that I have just taught them to pray, knowing that in some ways their little minds uh, may not understand it, but to pray, most holy Trinity, teach us how to love. Uh, but the Trinity is so difficult. <laughs> You've taught theology for many years. Help us uh, touch uh, with our minds better that, that concept of the Trinity. I remember a comment that uh, the Jesuit theologian Karl Rahner once uh, once made, uh, where he said that you know the Trinity we all acknowledge as Catholics the doctrine of the Trinity, but for the average Catholic, if the Trinity disappeared, he might not even notice it went away. There's, I think, some truth to that, and and I think you know we we sometimes get caught up with the theological technical language of the beginnings and the consubstantiality and the procession of the Father through the Son, in the Son, whatever. Uh, you know, all of that is of great interest to theologians and historians of the 3rd and 4th century. But John Paul II, in his uh, focus on the theology of love and love and responsibility, in fact, was instrumental in reminding us that the the core truth of the Trinity for uh, everyday Christians is that God is love, and God being love is not a single. He is not a one or only a one. Uh, He is a communion of persons, Father, uh, Son, and Holy Spirit, love, beloved, and the love, and they are distinct in terms of who they are in relation, but one God, that's the essence of what the Trinity is. That's what we are called to mirror as human beings made in God's image and likeness. And that in itself is adequately uh, profound and deep without necessarily having to probe all the theological terminology that, uh, that can be set aside for some other time and some other day. Well, John, we go from the uh, the solemnity of the Holy Trinity to another solemnity, this of uh, the Corpus Christi, which is another profound mystery in the Church. And this solemnity uh, coincides with the beginning of the U.S. Bishop's uh, three-year National Eucharistic Revival, which, of course, has as its aim to revive Catholic belief in the Eucharist and and ignite really a grassroots movement of evangelization. Uh, Could you talk a little bit more about the solemnity, but also the importance of this Eucharistic Revival? Well, of course, the Solemnity of Corpus Christi uh, dates back to the Middle Ages, uh, and uh, it reminds, you know, the the institution of the Eucharist happened on Holy Thursday, but in in the midst of everything else that's associated with the Paschal Mystery, we don't have the time, really, to focus on it in those last days of Holy Week, and so the Church... Uh, particularly showcases the institution of the Eucharist in the Solemnity of Corpus Christi, which uh, in theory would be uh, the Thursday after Trinity Sunday in the United States, transferred to the following Sunday. Uh, I think in many ways we have lost an understanding of what the Eucharist is. We have tended to dumb down that uh, theology uh, in our religious education, particularly over the last few decades. Uh, and the 2019 study that the Pew Charitable Trust uh, did 
which suggests that the typical Catholic doesn't understand what the real presence is or has a kind of almost symbolic understanding of what the Eucharist is. There's a real wake-up call for the bishops uh, who have devised this program uh, in order to foster a renewal of understanding of the Eucharist uh, which I hope will be successful, and I pray will be successful, but I think we, we really need to recover aspects of our Eucharistic devotion that have fallen by the wayside over the course of, of decades, uh, and hopefully that will be our uh, our effort in the next few years, in the next three years. Yes, I'm looking forward to uh, this weekend covering uh, some Corpus Christi events, uh, you know, throughout the country, um, the processions that happen in parishes throughout neighborhoods, um, often in the, you know, summer heat uh, here in Louisiana, it's terribly hot, um, are just such a wonderful opportunity um, to just adore our Lord and to, to be a witness uh, to the surrounding community. I, I've heard of one event uh, in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, a, a Corpus Christi procession that's uh, intended to gather thousands. Um, people are busing in for it. And so hopefully the register will be able to cover um, you know these events um, and really bring... Um, bring to light uh, just this devotion and, and hopefully interest others in it. Uh, this weekend, of course, is also Father's Day, um, and that is a, a beautiful um, celebration, you know, the connection of Corpus Christi um, with Father's Day. I'm sure you have uh, some thoughts uh, about that, but but you did write a column also for the Register uh, that connects Father's Day in a special way to this moment um, that we all are, are waiting for, this Dobbs decision that um, is is likely to overturn Roe versus Wade and, and just what the implications are for fathers in that. John, uh, share with our audience what you have written uh, in, these, in our pages about Father's Day and um, this upcoming decision re- related to Roe. Uh, thanks. Well, I mean, the important thing first that I think we should remember is that uh, at the heart of all reality is not some abstract principle, is not some dry concept called Trinity. At the heart of all reality is a Father's heart. It's the heart of God the Father, who begets the Son, who loves in the Spirit, who creates the world, who draws the world to himself. So, uh, as as St. Paul puts it, all fatherhood in heaven and on earth has its origins in God. Um, In terms of Roe versus Wade and our prayer that this decision will finally be consigned to the dustbin of history. Uh, let's remember that when Roe was decided, it was such a radical decision that it basically upended the law in almost every state. And states were left with no uh, abortion regulations, and they were scrambling in the uh, at least the first half of the 1970s as to how to fill in this void. One of the questions that came up was the question of what are the rights of fathers involved in uh, abortion decisions. Uh, We talk in our culture about uh, the individualization of our culture. We talk about bowling alone. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can bowl alone, but you can't procreate alone. It's always a team sport. 
So uh, that being the case, uh, Missouri adopted laws in 1975 saying that a father needed to give consent to the abortion of his unborn child, and those cases were, of course, litigated by Planned Parenthood to the Supreme Court and were invalidated in 1976 by the court. The court threw that out, saying that mothers are uh, intimately involved in the abortion decision, men not so much, uh, and therefore states could not uh, delegate the veto power over abortion to a father. Uh, the very fact that the court thought that a father is delegated that interest and that concern by the state uh, is itself, frankly, bizarre. I mean, no father thinks that, you know, he has become a father as part of his patriotic duty towards right. the Commonwealth of Virginia. When Roe goes away, as we pray, the the fact of the matter is also we're going to be in an analogous situation to where we were in the 1970s, where all of a sudden a lot of gaps in the law that have been created by by the Roe license are going to appear, one of them being what is the role of the father in, in the abortion decision. Of course, of course, and and we all know that, you know, law... Uh, does have an important part in that, but but so does culture too, and we have a lot uh, to build, um, you know, in terms of a culture of life, a culture of love, and and of, of true family. Um, John, I'm I'm so grateful um, for the pieces that we've talked about here that that you've written your columns at the, for the Register. One is June's feasts of life giving love, and the other was fatherhood in law and culture in the wake of Roe. And I really want to wish you a, a happy Father's Day, and to all of our fathers uh, who are listening. Thank you so much for being with us, John. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, Matthew Bunsen and I will talk about stories you won't want to miss. This is Register Radio on EWTN. There's more when we return. Archbishop Cordelione talks about the National Catholic Register. The Register's content is so critically important in the society we're living in now. There's an absence of the practice of religion in public life. So all the more important is it for people to be reading the Register so that they can acquire more understanding of our Catholic faith. I've appreciated the catechetical benefits of the content of the Register. It presents very clear Catholic teaching in a way that is easily digestible. To get six free issues, order online at ncregister.com forward slash radio or call 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. That's ncregister.com forward slash radio or 800-421-3230 and mention code radio. Call or click today. The National Catholic Register. Read faithfully. Let's return to Register Radio on EWTN. Welcome back. I'm Jeanette DeMello, Executive Director and Editor-in-Chief of the National Catholic Register. I'm joined by Matthew Bunsen, my co-host and EWTN News' Executive Editor. We were just talking to Register columnist John Grandelsky about uh, Father's Day, fatherhood, and, and of course the other uh, feasts of June, our, our church feast. And I wanted to point out some of the articles at ncregister.com 
uh, for fathers or on fatherhood um, that are worth reading. So one of them is called Fatherhood, A Call to Heroism by Patty Armstrong. There's another on Fatherhood on Film uh, by Robert Brennan. And then one, Gratitude for Father's Delight, Lessons from Holy Dads by John Clark. And there's this great read about uh, the Eucharist. So, of course, we're celebrating Father's Day and Corpus Christi. And one of those great reads is about uh, the real presence uh, and how uh, one deacon believes uh, Christ in the Eucharist helped him to survive uh, a wartime ordeal. He was in Vietnam in Vietnam War. And the title of that is, I'm absolutely convinced I survived because of the real presence. And that's by Thomas McDonald. Uh, the uh, editorial is also on Corpus Christi. And so I invite you to read that as well. Uh, but Matthew, um, speaking of the news of the week, I would much rather just talk about <laughs> uh, fathers and Father's Day and Corpus Christi because those are, are just wonderful topics, beautiful topics. Um, but there's a lot of news that has been a bit challenging this week. And, and one of those news items has to do with the violence that, that we have seen aimed at uh, crisis pregnancy centers, um, uh, these centers who help women um, who are in need uh, during their pregnancies and, and often right after their pregnancies. Um, these uh, centers throughout the country obviously do a wonderful service for, for women in need who have chosen not to abort but to have their children. And yet they have become the target of a group called Jane's Revenge. Uh, what can you tell us about uh, Jane's Revenge? Well, yeah, I'd point everyone to uh, some very good reporting by Kevin Jones from the, the Catholic News Agency. And uh, some of the uh, names like Jane's Revenge and other things um, sort of exploded into, at least uh, within our orbit, we should say, uh, with the plans for a night of rage uh, mm -hmm. and a summer of rage. Uh, to respond to the Supreme Court's expected uh, decision, uh, we're still awaiting it, uh, what is expected to overturn Roe v. Wade. So we have seen a group like this uh, targeting, apparently, uh, different uh, crisis pregnancy centers that you've seen and clearly trying to terrify, uh, to intimidate uh, the people who work there, the, the women who might be considering going there, and the, the name itself uh, uh, seems to be uh, based, uh, as uh, we're seeing, on a kind of revenge, uh, calling out uh, the violence of the 1960s and 70s. And uh, we're seeing, for example, uh, recent documentaries on what's called the Janes, uh, which has defined the state legislature that outlawed abortion uh, in Chicago and elsewhere. So there's a lot here uh, to unpack with this group, especially given uh, some of their recent tweets that uh, allegedly, we always have to emphasize that, uh, allegedly promising even more violence. Right. I think it was last week, um, Raymond Arroyo and the World Over had uh, an analyst from the, the State Department, Homeland uh, Security, who was basically, you know, saying he didn't think that these were organized groups or big, you know, big organized groups, but, but he did think that they should be treated as, as terrorist organizations 
um, a ter terrorist activity, even though that's not currently uh, apparently how the State Department is thinking about it, um, which is which is sad. A, a tweet that was was passing around, uh, circulating earlier this week um, from this this group apparently, you know, is claiming. Um, you know, claiming destruction or, or, or some kind of intimidation um, in in many states, uh, Madison, Wisconsin, Fort Collins, Colorado, um, Rajtown, Massachusetts, Olympia, Washington, Des Moines, Iowa, um, another place in Washington, Washington, D.C., Asheville, North Carolina, Buffalo, New York, Hollywood, Florida. I mean, the list goes on. I mean, it's, it's, it's many places that they're claiming uh, destruction and and the messages are terrible. They say if abortion isn't safe, then neither are you. And that's, that's right. um and and it is very clear that they're targeting these kind of organizations, but also what they have called in institutions uh, that um, that support um, uh, you know the repeal of Roe. And so mm -hmm. that means that the Supreme Court justices that they're, they're target, targeting them. Obviously, there was um, uh, the attack um, or the attempted attack on Kavanaugh. Uh, I've heard of other justices targeted and their children targeted. The you know just terrible information. But they're also in the churches, you know, in Catholic churches. Right. Um, a, a similar group called Ruth sent us um, is a group that has also um, acted to disrupt um, liturgies. And, and so it's a, it's, it's really increasing uh, the intensity of, um, of rage, if you will, um, seems to, to really be increasing. Well, and this uh, is exactly why the uh, Department of Homeland Security gave that type of uh, a statement that it did. Now, supposedly, it also informed the USCCB uh, that they expect that there's a genuine risk of churches being attacked, uh, of this violence escalating, especially once we have uh, the Dobbs decision handed down by the, the highest court. And then we see state legislators moving very quickly in, in many different locations, in many different states, uh, to proceed with um, what we know is likely to follow uh, the revocation of Roe, and that is to each state is going to have its own privilege uh, to decide for itself what's going to happen with abortion. Right. So we are probably in for a potentially very difficult and worrisome summer. Exactly, and and um, obviously everybody in newsrooms, but but in many places are just watching the Supreme Court um, almost every morning, um, just just until you know uh, uh, for about an hour from uh, is it ten ten a.m. Eastern? We just watch yeah, to exactly. see what decisions are coming, and we're pinned to uh, to the blog there, um, the SCOTUS blog. Um, so we're all ready, ready for that moment, but but um, but not ready for for the the unrest that could follow. And we really pray um, for for cooler heads and for for greater peace. Um, that's that's what's going on, kind of in our country, right? The national scope right now, but but really in the church, there have been some interesting interesting moments. Um, there was a an interview this week. It was the Pope speaking to Jesuit magazines, and there are many of those throughout the world. Very interesting. The headline that kind of caught my attention that came from that uh, relates to what the Pope called restorers. Um, he said, there are many restorers in the U.S. who do not accept Vatican II. 
Um, he seems to be referring to a movement of, of so-called traditionalists who have questioned the validity of Vatican II. Um, what more did he say on that topic? Well, that's right. Uh, he cites this group as refusing to accept the Second Vatican Council, uh, but as he says, uh, it has come to gag the council. And then went on to note uh, that in the United States uh, there are many um, members of this supposed group, and that uh, he's seeing this as well in other places. Uh, he talked, for example, about an Argentine bishop uh, who said that uh, the diocese had fallen into the hands in Argentina of uh, these, quote, restorers, and uh, there are ideas, he says, behaviors that arise from a restorationism that basically did not accept the council. Mm. So I think we're seeing one of the reasons, at least in Francis's mind, to why he felt it necessary to issue his motu proprio uh, all the way um, basically a year ago, right. uh, Traditionis Custodis, that really sought to limit the celebration of uh, the so-called Tridentine, or commonly known as a traditional Latin mass. Right. It's unfortunate that these two things always get conflated because I don't think that that's necessarily um, accurate. I, I know many people who do prefer uh, the traditionalist liturgy, uh, if you want to call it that, um, but who who do believe um, in the council as as the Holy Spirit active in the church, and so it's I think an important work for the register to try and to uh, uplift uh, those who may have those tendencies uh, toward a traditional liturgy, but also do accept um, the authority of, of Vatican II. It's it's an important work. Um, there were other things, though, important things that the Pope said um, in yes, this interview. Indeed. What what are some of them that rise to your attention? Well, the one that I think uh, really caught my eye and caught the eye of uh, a lot of uh, people who follow Pope Francis closely uh, was his observation when asked what he thought of the German synodal way. And, and the way that the, the question was phrased to him by one of the editors of a Jesuit publication was that it certainly must be favorable to what's happening in Germany. And the Pope's response, I think, took them probably a bit by surprise. Uh, it shouldn't, given what he said previously. But uh, he talked about the fact that he had had a conversation with Bishop Georg Beitzing, who's the chairman of the German Bishops' Conference, and made the point to him that uh, we already have a very good evangelical church, referring to the, the Lutherans in Germany. We don't need two. And it's, it's a clear reference, I think, to the concerns that Pope Francis has about the direction of the, the German synodal way or the synodal vague uh, that seems poised to push ahead in trying to unravel church teaching on uh, the way that authority is exercised in the church, uh, the, the priesthood, the ordination of women, and certainly uh, sexual the, the church's teachings on, on human sexuality. So there's, this was a pretty strong statement from Pope Francis. Definitely worth the read, um, and I encourage our listeners to go to ncregister.com and look uh, for that interview um, or the, the articles that we've written about the interview. I will point out one, one thing, and very, very quickly, that just to, to, to end on an uplifting note, interesting, um, difficult moral question answered by Christian Brueger, is there marriage in the heavenly kingdom? And I think it's well worth the read as we talked about life and love in the church in the early uh, part of the show. But you can find that and a lot more analysis and commentary at ncregistered.com. So I invite our listeners to check out the National Catholic Register there. Thanks to everyone for joining us on Register Radio here on EWTN. For Matthew Bunsen and our producer, Jeff Burson, I'm Jeanette DeMello. Until next week, God bless you and God bless our fathers. <laughs>